God wants to answer the prayer that we have just sung together as a congregation. We have prayed to the Lord to open the eyes of our hearts, to enable us to see Him. And the answer to that prayer is Revelation chapter 1. Would you open God's Word to the book of Revelation chapter 1? As we will get to see a picture of the exalted Jesus. Revelation chapter 1. If you are new to our congregation, if you're visiting with us, if you do not bring a Bible with you, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may open this uh, book uh, in the Pew Bibles uh, to page number 10, uh, 1028, 1028, as we read uh, Revelation chapter 1. This morning, the sermon will focus on verses 9 through 20, but in order to, be, to appreciate the context, we will read from verse 1 all the way to So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's word for us this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned. To see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Almighty God, we pray as we have just heard the reading of the words that Christ commanded to have written down for us. We pray that you would use the proclamation of these words for our hearts in such a way that Christ may be exalted in our hearts, in such a way that we might see the the glory and the majesty and the beauty of Christ, in such a way that we might be drawn to you in worship, adoration, and a joyful submission to your ways. We pray all this for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, dear friends, we are looking at the second half of, uh, of, of a sermon on Revelation 1. This chapter, this introductory chapter of Revelation 1 is really one, one unit. And we looked at the first half of it last week, and we're looking at the second half of it today. Two weeks ago, we began our study of the book of Revelation, and we saw that the book is about the conflict of two kingdoms. These are not two equal kingdoms. One is clearly going to lose in the end. But on earth, the losing kingdom appears to be winning. Revelation was written not only to tell us who is winning in the end, but it also instructs us to know what it means to live in the present as part of the kingdom that is winning in the end. Even if here and now, it may look like we're on the losing side. Revelation announces that King Jesus has already defeated his rival, Satan. But that victory is still hidden from the eyes of the earth. Actually, when Satan was defeated by King Jesus, uh, he was thrown out of heaven and, and thus he came with fury to the earth. And now he's seeking to deceive the dwellers of the earth, to worship him as if he is a true winner. He uses deception, he uses manipulation through riches, and he uses persecution to exert his power and to lead the earth to worship him. So Revelation was written to equip God's people not to compromise and not to give in to the seduction and to the pressure to worship anyone else other than the one true living God and to endure patiently to the end even at the cost of enduring death, should that be God's call to us. Last week, we began looking intently at the, at the chapter 1 that, intro, that gives us uh, an introduction and a setting for the whole book. And we noticed that this entire chapter 1 that introduces and sets up the book, this entire chapter 1 is all about Jesus. We saw the centrality of Christ in the very first three verses where Jesus is giving 
this revelation as his testimony. And this testimony is communicated through the words of the prophecy of this book. Thus, the testimony of Jesus has a claim on our lives. In other words, it's not sufficient merely to hear this prophetic word. It's not sufficient merely to hear this prophetic testimony, but we must also obey it. Hearing the words of this book is not sufficient. Friends, uh, some of us got really excited after the first sermon and and after the first two sermons uh, at the prospect that we might grow in understanding the book of Revelation. And it's been really sweet to hear comments from many of you uh, to to see enthusiasm growing in understanding the book of Revelation. But friends, even understanding the words of this book is not sufficient. It's certainly a step in the right direction. But if that's all there is, mere understanding is not going to be sufficient. The testimony of Jesus will be useful for us only to the degree that we obey the words of this prophecy. After introducing the book, John went on to tell us uh, and to give us a customary greeting of this book, which we see in verses 4 through 8. These greetings are introduced and closed with a message about the coming God, the eternal God who is coming back to earth. To announce that God is coming was not a new message. The Old Testament was annou- has announced this message several times. Uh, the Old Testament had many promises about, about the coming of God. So this promise of God coming is not new. But what Revelation announces new is that at the center of God's coming is the coming of Jesus. Jesus is at the center of God's coming. The coming God, as He promised He would, will be carried out by none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And how we relate to Jesus now will determine whether God's coming will be a tremendous welcoming or a terrifying confrontation. These, these were the two major points we've looked at last week. This morning, we continue the focus on on. Jesus in chapter 1 by looking at two more points. And the points this morning that we will look at, if you like taking notes, are the following. Jesus is fearfully glorious. And point two this morning, Jesus is engaged with his churches. Jesus is fearfully glorious and Jesus is engaged with his churches. Let's look at each of these realities, each of these points that we see this morning from the passage we've just read. Before we get to, to see what John experienced about Jesus in this vision of, of Revelation 1, he first tells us about his situation, which he found himself at the moment of receiving this vision of the exalted Jesus. The, the details about telling us where he was, how he was, at the moment of receiving this vision is not a new thing. The prophets of the Old Testament, like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, whenever they received a vision from God, they often told us where they were, what they were going through, and how, how it was that this vision was given to them. And, and the same characteristics are here presented before us as John tells us how he ca- came to have this vision of the exalted Jesus. Before we hear about what John saw, 
let's hear a little bit about how John described his situation. And the way John described his situation will actually help us appreciate even more the vision of the exalted Jesus. Notice how John begins describing his situation in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Notice that John identifies himself not merely as their brother, even though there's no biologically family ties, there's spiritual ties in Jesus. John sees himself and he sees the other followers of Jesus as brothers and sisters. That means that the followers of Jesus live like a family. We consider one another family. But John identifies himself not merely as their brother, but also as a partner with them, a companion with them, a partner alongside them. But what are, what are they sharing together? They're sharing something together in Jesus. And John identifies three realities that, that he wants them to know of what he shares with them in Jesus. Now, before we get into these realities, just ask yourself, if you were to list a few things that you want to believe and you experience as sharing in Jesus, what are the things you would say? What are the things you would bring out? Here's what John listed. Three realities as a result of being united in Christ along with his brothers and sisters. Tribulations, kingdom, and patient endurance. Now the word for tribulation does not mean merely the end of the world tribulations. Uh, the word can be translated as trouble or distress or afflictions. Throughout this book, John will speak at times of, of tribulations that God will endure, God's people will endure. Um, but here at the very beginning of the book, John tells us that he's already experiencing tribulations. It's true. The book of Revelation will tell us that these tribulations will intensify at the very end, right before the second coming of Christ. But John saw himself already experiencing the beginning of the end. Later in the book, John will help us see the true source of the hostility that God's people experience. It's a dragon and the two beasts that follow him. John was experiencing the very warnings that Jesus gave his disciples. Jesus, when he was on the earth, uh, said to his disciples in John 16, In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not, not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The New Testament apostles often took time to teach believers to expect suffering for the sake of Christ. Acts 14, 22. The apostle Paul, after he planted churches, he went back to visit them. And here's what he did on his visit back of the new churches that he had just planted. He went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. John saw himself as part of these warnings. But John also describes his union with Jesus as enabling him to share not only in tribulations, but also in the kingdom. 
And that's exciting. Earlier in, in chapter 1, verse 5, John said, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. The only reason why rebellious sinners like us, like all of us, can be declared, can be made, can have a share in the, in the kingdom of God is because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ for salvation. Notice what, accomplishes, what, what Jesus accomplishes for those who repent and trust in Him. He frees us from our sins, but He also makes us a kingdom. He makes us His kingdom. To be a Christian, dear friends, means to be a person in which the reign of God begins taking place. That's why to call yourself a Christian, but to deny or to resist the reign of God in your life is contrary to what God has intended for our salvation. John is aware that he, in his own life, is living the reign of God. He's experiencing, through his circumstances, the reign of God. Now, it's amazing that John speaks about both experiencing tribulations in Jesus and the kingdom in Jesus. And he's putting these together. We are often tempted to assume that if we share in the reign of God in our circumstances, we will be spared afflictions. The prosperity gospel will preach this way. But it's not what the Bible teaches. John tells us that suffering does not cancel out God's reign in our lives. Nor does God's reign in our lives cancel out suffering. To be a Christian is to share in both. In tribulations and in God's reign and in His kingship. To be in Jesus means to share in both. John shares not only in tribulations and the kingdom, but he also shares in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He does not leave us to endure alone. Jesus does not just leave us to our tribulations. He does not leave us to endure on our own strength. John wants Christians to know that in Jesus, we have more, we have more than tribulations, and we have more than His kingship. In, in Jesus, we also have more than just hope for the future. We also have strength for the present to endure patiently. And we have access to this patient endurance because of our union with Jesus. Friends, where do you look to when you need endurance and patience? Where do you look to? Do you look to your schedule, hoping to free up some, some time in your schedule? Do you look to your activities, uh, such as going on a shopping spree, just to try to deconnect from the craziness of your life? Uh, do you look merely to your diet? Do you look merely to exercise? Do you think that mere positive thinking will do it for you? Do you look merely to, to people for support for that patient endurance? We live in a society that tells you that you need to believe in yourself to make it. 
friend, no matter how strong some of us are, our strength sooner or later will fail. Where do you look when you get to the end of your rope? John begins writing the book of Revelation and describes his situation. He tells us what he experiences in Jesus. Tribulations, his kingdom, but also patient endurance. Friends, I wonder if you see your circumstances. I wonder if you see your experiences as flowing out of being in Jesus. I wonder if you can bring together uh, the, the, the distress, the affliction, the reign of God, and the endurance that we get from Jesus. Being in Jesus does not despair us, does not spare us the distress. God reigns in us through these experiences. And sometimes suffering comes to us because God reigns in us. And endurance for us means not only readiness to stand persecution, but endurance also means alertness to resist the deception of the devil, to discern in our own hearts the lures of buying into what this world values apart from God. Endurance means readiness to forgive when Satan wants to sow seeds of disunity among us. Oh, friends, endurance is what we experience when we realize that suffering and the kingdom are both realities that we have in Jesus. It's when we try to keep these apart that we seem to have no hope or no, no strength to endure. But when we realize that in Jesus, we get all three. We are given the strength to move one step next to the other, in front of the other, and endure patiently every day. Friends, this is a long discussion on John's own description at the time he received the vision of the exalted Jesus. But this setting helps us to appreciate the, the, the vision that John sees and how he sees Jesus. John saw the exalted Christ in a time of distress. He had many reasons, earthly reasons, to feel fearful, to feel discouraged, to feel even um, anxious. He had many reasons. He was on Patmos. Patmos was an island not for vacation. It was an island most likely for banishment and exile. John tells us that he was on, as, uh, as he was on Patmos, he was experiencing the tribulations. So most likely, this is a hint that Patmos was uh, a, a destination for John's uh, punishment. John had reasons to be concerned and fearful. But while on Patmos, John tells us he, he was on, and on the Lord's day, he was in the Spirit. And this means, most likely that John was having some sort of special experience, special time with God on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is likely a reference to Sunday uh, or at the very least to the, to the Easter Day. It's unclear exactly, but John was in this time of what might be physical distress, physical affliction. On the Lord's Day, he is in the Spirit. And as he was in the Spirit on this day, he heard a loud voice which at this point in the story, at this point in the, in, the, in the unfolding of this chapter, we don't know who it is. A loud voice who commissioned John to write. Look at verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. The commission to write this book is given twice in this chapter. Not only in verse 11, but also in verse 19, where Jesus 
says to John, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Notice what John is called to write. Not only about the future, but also about the present. The things that are taking place in the present when John was writing the book. This means that the book of Revelation is not merely for the future, but it also is written for us to understand the present. Revelation is a book that helps us understand both the future and the present. And my prayer, dear friends, is that as a result of the book of Revelation, we get to look differently at our own lives in the present time. So what is happening in the present? What is John seeing at the moment when he gets his vision? He sees a vision of Christ's present role. Prior to the vision, John's fears, discouragement, or what we might think would be his fears or discouragements, his afflictions. But all of these, all of these fears or anxieties pale in comparison to the fear that John gets to experience when he sees the exalted Jesus. When John saw Jesus, he got so fearful, he fell down as though dead. It is the appearance of the exalted Christ that brought John a different kind of fear, a different degree of fear. And the vision of Jesus is so glorious that it leaves John with no strength in his bones to keep standing. Friends, this is no cozy experience of Jesus. And remind you, who is the disciple who is having this vision of Jesus? It's the beloved disciple. It's one of the only three who are invited on the Mount of Transfiguration to get a picture of the glory of Jesus as he was transformed for a few brief moments on the Mount of of Transfiguration. John had seen a picture of the exalted Jesus even while he was on earth in a very brief moment. And yet what John gets to see now in in Revelation 1 is so frightening. That he is left powerless. Friends, the description of Christ in this vision is important. Not only is it important because it, it shows us the intensity of the glory of Christ. But it's also important because most of the descriptions of Jesus in this vision will be brought out again when Christ introduces himself to each of the seven churches. In other words, this vision of of the exalted Jesus was not aimed merely to scare everything out of John. It was actually to prepare the churches to hear the word from the exalted Christ. Oh, friends, the vision of Jesus will be relevant as we will see the messages to the seven churches which we will look at in the next two weeks. For now, a brief summary of how Christ is described. Uh, a brief summary of this will be helpful. In verse 14, we are told that Christ appears with hair white as snow. While the white hair could be a sign of wisdom and long age, the description of, of hair is taken from Daniel 7, where Daniel saw a vision of the Ancient of Days, a description of God Himself. Here, Christ appears 
to John with characteristics similar to God in the Old Testament. Another element that describes Christ as God is the description of of His voice. It says, like the roar of many waters. The prophet Ezekiel described the coming of God in the following way in Ezekiel 34. I'm sorry, in Ezekiel 43, verse 2. The sound of His coming, talking about the coming of God, the sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters. It's important to pick this out. Ezekiel in 43, 2, described the coming of God with this auditory sensory experience as a sound of many waters. And here at the beginning of Revelation, John gets a picture of the exalted Christ and he hears his voice as a voice of many waters. In other words, the voice of Christ is ascribed in language that characterized and fulfilled the coming God in the Old Testament. This means that whenever Jesus is speaking, it had all the resemblances of the coming of God as he promised himself to be. Also, the, the, the description of Jesus goes to talk about his eyes. His eyes was like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. To have eyes like a flame of fire was an indication that this, could, this being could see through everything. Nothing could stand it. Just like fire, you can't put a stop to it. It, it can burn through anything and everything. There's nothing that his eyes could not expose or see through. We may be able to give false impressions to people. We may pretend to be uh, to others someone that we are not. But Jesus sees through everything. His, his eyes see through the motivations of our hearts. Nothing is hidden before him. Just like in the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. From his mouth comes a, a sword, a double-edged sword, indicating that he is ready to do battle. But what comes out of his mouth is a weapon. He doesn't need a, a physical, actual weapon. We see this picture. Don't, don't imagine here that there's an actual physical weapon. This is all a vision. This is a, a, a vision of, of Christ in, a symbolic, uh, in symbolic pictures. And the point of the imagery here is that what comes out of the word of Jesus is actually functioning like a sword, is used like a sword. This should not surprise us. Remember, remember the armor uh, of God that, that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6 and describing various, various elements of the armor when it comes to talk about the Word of God, the Apostle says, and the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to do the battle in our hearts. Hebrews 4:12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, do you want to have a better look at the motivations of your heart? Read the Bible. Read the Word of God. And ask the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to pierce, to expose, to cut, to heal. In the face of Jesus, 
the face of Jesus is like is shining like the sun in full strength. No wonder that John fell down as though dead. Friends, this view of Jesus that John saw should give us caution in how we understand being close to Jesus. Many Christians today, many Christians today, especially in the Western Hemisphere, in the Western world, have the impression that being close to Jesus means being casual with Him. We may assume that mere casualness or, or the more casual we are with Jesus, the more close we must be to Him. But John's experience shows us that Jesus is fearfully glorious. Fearfully, not in a terrifying way that keeps us away from approaching Jesus, but fearful in the sense of a sober awe, so sober that it leaves us with no power of our own. The awe of Christ does not leave us casual. I wonder if you have thought of Jesus this way. Certainly he is like a friend that we can approach. Certainly he is like like a father to whom we can come as a child comes to his father. But friends, he is more than that. There's different aspects, there's different facets to our approach to God. And all of them are true, including this sober awe of God that inspires us to come to him with a reverence, with a with both a delight, but bo- both with a delight, but also with a, a sense of recognizing the, the seriousness, the majesty, the, the the great aspects that are at stake in our presence of God. When John sees a vision of Jesus for the first time, he does not he does not know who it is. We have to wait. We have to wait to hear the divine being identify himself in verse 17. In other words, just a mere vision of this heavenly being is not enough. We need to know who it is. And he identifies himself in verse 17 and 18. Fear not, Jesus says. Verse 17 and 18, we get to hear how Jesus describes himself. The vision of Jesus is not about just what you see but also what you hear. Fear not, I'm the first and the last. Now, this was a similar description of how God identified himself in verse 8. Remember, at the closing of the the greetings in verse 8, God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And the Alpha and the Omega were the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. In other words, there's nothing before him, there's nothing after him. The divine being that John sees in in chapter 1, describes himself with the exact same words as God described himself. Then verse 18, this divine being says, I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This makes it beyond a doubt that this heavenly being that John sees, that frightened him, um, this divine being is no no other than Jesus himself. He And he alone died and is now alive forevermore. He has tasted death once, yet is now alive and will be so forever and ever. But not only is he alive, but also he has the keys of death and Hades. Jesus declares here, 
His authority over all those who have died. It means that those who belong to Jesus should have no more concern over death because Jesus has the keys of death. Not only does He conquer death for Himself, but He has the authority to open the gates of death to anyone who has caught them in. No wonder Jesus told Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. How can Jesus declare that? Because here in Revelation 1, he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Why is this vision good news? Those who belong to Christ should have no concern in dying or in having approaching or in approaching death. In Revelation, many of Christ's followers experience a threat of persecution and even death. The beast will be able to conquer the saints of God by killing some of them. But Jesus, here at the very beginning, says, Don't worry. I got the keys. Have you ever been locked out of your car? If it happens when you're at home in the garage, it's a no-brainer. Most likely, you have a spare key in your home. You go get it, and you just open the car with the other spare key. But if you don't have the key, you're in trouble. You either have to call a locksmith or call the the dealership to, to come out and help you open the key because without the key, you won't be able to open the door. And not having the key even to, to a car that's locked up uh, causes us at least a fair amount of frustration. And, uh, and we, might, we might think it's the end of the world in some situations. It's not the end of the world. It may appear to be so. Friends, Jesus tells us that he's got the key of death and Hades. So that when we are locked up by death and Hades, we have nothing to worry about. Jesus will open that door. He will open that door and bring us out of it. He and he alone is a locksmith that can open the doors of death and Hades. No other company, no other service, no other being has that authority. So, dear friends, when we approach death, we should look at it knowing that the one to whom we had entrusted our souls has the key to open it up. For those of us who have lost dear ones, for those of us who have experienced grief, This past week, I was able to speak to one of our families who is continuing to go through significant grief right now. Friends, it may feel like this life is worth living no more because of the the pain of grief. But friends, Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. And because of that, everything continues to have meaning because what Jesus will do with them is to bring to him, to bring to life all those who belong to him. If Christ holds the keys of death, it means there's life after death. And he and he alone is able to grant that life. I wonder, I wonder, have you entrusted your life 
to him who has the keys of death? Have you turned to him? Have you believed in him? Not just in a mental ascent kind of way, but actually giving to him the keys of your life, the keys of your identity, the keys of of your dreams, the keys of your hopes, the keys of your safety? Have you given to him everything? Because in some way, salvation means putting everything that you have in this basket called Jesus. And it's worth doing it, dear friends, because he's got the keys for the very ultimate reality that none of us can control. Death and Hades and even hell. Although John, uh, Jesus appeared fearfully glorious at the beginning of this book, the surprising element in the vision of the exalted Jesus is not only that Jesus is fearfully glorious up in heaven, but that Jesus is concerned with the life of the local churches. The point two in this sermon on the exalted Jesus, the point two and the final point this morning is that Jesus is not only fearfully glorious, but Jesus is engaged with his churches. How do you see Jesus engaged with his churches? In two ways in this chapter. At least in two ways. There's more, but at least two ways. We see Jesus engaged with his churches. Jesus, first of all, commissions John to write this revelation for the churches. And notice it's not just for the, the church in general. Jesus could have addressed the letter of revelation to all the churches that will ever live uh, in the present and in the future. Now, there is a sense in which the book of Revelation is intended to be written and to be applied for the universal church, for all the churches of all times. But notice that Jesus doesn't merely send it to the general universal church, but he sends it first and foremost to specific local congregations, to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, these are not the only churches in Asia Minor at the time. We know, for instance, the church uh, Colossae uh, was not very far from Laodicea. It was about actually about four or five miles away from Laodicea. And yet Colossae is not introduced in this list of seven. Why do we have seven churches and only seven? Because in the book of Revelation, numbers have meaning and significance. Seven in the book of Revelation is a symbol of completeness. John is, is instructed by Jesus to write to these seven because, John, because Jesus wants to, to write to a complete set of churches, even though these are not all the churches. And yet, Jesus says to John, take what you see and write to them, to these specific churches. Now, it's instructive that Jesus is commanding John to write the revelation of Jesus Christ in a written form. God wanted his word to be written down. Not merely to have a vision, not merely to have a dream, but to actually be written down so that it will be communicated, so that it's an objective revelation that is passed on from one generation to another. If you want to hear from God, then read the words that God inspired his prophets to write down in the scriptures. Some today, and I think we live in a time, especially in Austin, where I see an increasing interest in spirituality 
Christian spirituality, where we think that if we are that we are increasing in our spirituality if we have experiences of hearing Jesus. There's even a very popular book out there called Jesus Calling that encourages people to listen and to write down what they hear Jesus speaking to them. Friends, this is very dangerous because it assumes that our subjective experience is similar to what God revealed to us in His Word. If you want to hear the calling of Jesus, the best thing to do is to read the Bible. Yes, the Holy Spirit takes the Bible and helps us apply it to our lives. Yes, the Holy Spirit is able to direct us in our daily decisions, in our daily thinking. But it is also possible, and it's very easy for us to confuse our inner desires and thoughts and put them on the tab of the Holy Spirit or of God and assume that God or Jesus is speaking to us. Friends, it's amazing that Jesus here is engaging with these seven churches, not by giving them subjective experiences, but by sending them an objective written word. And twice Jesus commands John, write down what you see. But sometimes, actually more now than, than in other seasons I've seen, we are living in a time where we seem to prefer the subjective experience that we may have from God rather than actually committing ourselves to this book that God has commanded his prophets to write down so that the Bible is actually marginalized and most of our attention is on what we hear from God in our own private experiences. Oh, friends, God's revelation has been communicated to us in a written form. This was God's design. Have you considered that the degree to which we engage with the Scripture, we actually engage with Jesus? The degree to which you engage with the Bible, you actually engage with Jesus. That's why we make it a big deal in our services to read the Bible, to actually open this book and read the Bible more than once. And sometimes the chapters that we read are long. And sometimes the words that we read in this book are difficult even to pronounce. Friends, when we engage with a word that has been written, that God commanded to have written down, we engage with the voice of Jesus. So Jesus is engaged with his churches because Jesus is commissioning John to write this revelation for the churches. But notice another reason why and how we know that Jesus is engaged with the churches and why that matters to us. Jesus appears to John as standing in the midst of the seven churches. Did you notice the detail that I sort of skipped over in verses 12 and 13? Then John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now it may surprise you to hear that John, or Jesus, cares to reveal to us how he was clothed. A long robe with a golden golden sash on his chest. This was often, uh, or this was the clothing that priests had in the Old Testament. And then Jesus also appears in the midst of the seven lampstands. Uh, Did you know that in the Old Testament, the lampstands only belonged to the temple? In the original uh, instructions for the temple, there was only one lampstand. 
And it was a job of the priest to attend to the lampstand to make sure that the lampstand is always burning. That there's enough oil to keep the light in the lampstand burning. The role of the priest was to keep the lampstands alive and burning. And here Jesus appears clothed in the garments of a priest, standing in the midst of the lampstands. And verse 20 tells us that the lampstands are a symbol for the seven churches. Now, why is this a big deal for us? Friends, Jesus cares deeply about the local church. John sees Jesus in the midst of these seven specific local churches. Sometimes we feel that Jesus is far from us, that he's up in heaven on God's throne and we are down here and we can do things however we want. It's true that, God is, that Jesus is seated on God's throne, but at the same time, he is engaged specifically with local congregations. Sometimes we may feel that it's all about me and Jesus, that it's just an experience of how Jesus directs and, and relates to each of us individually, and yet here Jesus shows up in the midst of the churches. Dear friends, Jesus cares deeply about the local church. The fact that he chose seven local churches as the original recipients of this book should tell us that Jesus seeks to address all the churches. And yet at the same time, he's very specific about the life of each specific church. Today we live in a time when and where the life of the local church has been unhitched from what it means to follow Jesus. Sadly, Christians today increasingly feel that church life is merely an option, a good option, a helpful option, a helpful option that helps us grow, a helpful option that helps us support one another, but it's just an option of what it means to be a Christian. Friends, in Revelation, Jesus is not interested with the life of individual Christians. He is interested with the life of the church. He is interested with the life of each individual church. The encouragements or the rebuke that Jesus gives are not merely to individuals, although it has personal application. Jesus gives it, announces it, in the context of addressing the church. You can't see your Christian life merely as a relation between you and Jesus. Jesus cared for his followers through the venue of the local church. That's why the book of Revelation presents Jesus as walking between the seven golden lampstands, which represents each of the seven churches. Friends, in our membership seminar, we devote an entire session to the topic of church and membership. Why do they matter? Why do we include this session? Because in the last few decades, Christians in the West, particularly in America, have increasingly marginalized the church and made it to be a sideline of their Christian experience. We live in a time when we actually must convince Christians of the importance of the church for understanding what it means to follow Jesus. Students, may I speak to you for a second? Before you commit to devote your time to a parachurch ministry on campus, even if it's a good gospel ministry on campus, we encourage you to actually first commit to a local church. We encourage you to first become involved in a local church. Why? Because Jesus shows up 
in the life of the local church. He cares deeply for it. Jesus wants to address you and to speak to you and to equip you through the life of the local congregation just as the entire book of Revelation is set up with this framework of seven local specific congregations. I entitled the two messages of Revelation 1 last week and this week, it's all about Jesus. And it's so true. But as we come to the end of Revelation 1, we realize that for Jesus, it's all about the local church. Jesus not only sends this book to seven congregations, but he appears in the midst of them. He holds a destiny in his, their destiny in his hands. Friends, do you struggle with the idea of being committed to a local church? I pray you consider the importance of the local church for your spiritual well-being. If Jesus appears exalted in the midst of these local churches, why would you struggle to commit to a local church? If Jesus, in his glorious appearance to John, makes his manifestation in the midst of local congregations, why would you struggle with the notion of committing to a local congregation, of being a member of one, of belonging to one. Oh, friends, I pray that if you are struggling with this thought, I'd love to talk to you more at the end of the service. I'd love to understand where you're coming from. But understand this. Jesus is all about the life of the local church. He knows the church. He knows each church specifically by name, by its struggle. And he has the recipe for each church to know what it needs to grow in the image of Christ. Jesus is fearfully glorious, and Jesus is engaged with his churches. I'll leave you with one last quote. One of the Bible interpreters said the following, one of the central issues in Revelation is the kingdom of God and of his Christ. This kingdom was composed of churches, the realm in which the authority of the king of kings was recognized. This is why Jesus cares so much about the local church. Because in the life of the local church, people show on which side of the battle they are in as the conflict of the two kingdoms unfolds. I wonder if you realize that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus, about his kingdom. But Jesus is all about the church, and we cannot separate these. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have chosen, you have chosen to experience display your glory not only through your son Jesus Christ but also to see the glory of Christ in the midst of the churches father we pray that we might we might see afresh of a vision of the immense awe of both Christ and his desire to come alongside and to care and to sustain and support and grow and and, in, and strengthen the life of the churches. Father, help us to be a congregation in which the glory of Christ shines clearly and strongly and increasingly so that indeed we may be a people that take your side in the battle that we have ahead of us. We pray all this for the glory of Christ in the name his, of, his, of him and for his precious glory.